0: Hello! I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for listening in. I was reflecting back on the experiences that have been shared throughout this season, and it got me really feeling like this conversation with guest Ashley May is the perfect finale to this whole season. We've actually been planning on sitting down and having this conversation on the podcast for over a year now, but our busy working mama lives just kept getting in the way. I think it's important to mention that although this is the last episode in this season, it's not the last time the kinds of questions and concerns that were brought up in this season will be brought up on the show. Questions concerning equity, inclusion, and belonging are not just simply solved, they take time to explore and work on. I know this season's theme will continue to come up in other episodes and other seasons. Know that this isn't the end of talking about the topic of inclusion and belonging, it's more of a beginning. First chapter of something that will need to be continued to be explored throughout other seasons of the show as well. There are quite a few resources for this episode, and those can be found on the show notes page for this episode, which is walderfee.com forward slash Ashley May. Now, let me introduce you to Ashley. Ashley J. May is a mother and ethnographer living on the unceded Tongva lands commonly known as Los Angeles, California. She is the founder and project director of the Grassroots Morning Garden Project that aims to liberate families and organize parents and their children around spaces of freedom through a co-constructed model for holistic, nature-immersive parent and child groups, nature-based partnerships, and mutual aid. Her graduate training is in research and evaluation, specifically in early childhood and community care contexts. She has over 20 years experience in education and holds a child development site supervisor permit from the California Department of Education and is a member of the Waldorf Early Childhood Association of North America and the American Anthropological Association, as well as the Society for the History of Children and Youth. Ashley infuses the beauty of Waldorf philosophy, nature of immersive play, and informal education practices into her work and home life while elucidating the places of expansion and opportunities for transformation in order that we be in right relationship with families and communities we serve. Welcome, Ashley May. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Ashley. It's so exciting to be here with you again a year later. (sighs) I know we first recorded together a year ago, and I'd mentioned in an earlier um, episode this not this season, but in the previous season actually of Waldorfy that. The episode that we recorded together was one of my absolute favorites. And it's Waldorf in a Muslim home. And you can find that episode, everybody back in season two, and I will link to it on the show notes page for this episode. But it was really just a beautiful kind of window into what you've created and your experience in your home life and bringing Waldorf ideas in. And it was so lovely. So thank you for sharing then and welcome back. Today, we're going to be focusing more on your, professional work. Thank you
1: for having me. I'm very excited. I, I was listening the other day, washing dishes uh, and listening to our old episode and just really to uh, reflecting on how that was such a wonderful conversation. And I felt so comfortable sharing a little bit about my family with you. And I think this is a wonderful follow-up to that conversation.
0: Yes. One that we've actually as i've mentioned in some of our social media I've been planning for a year in fact this entire season about inclusion and belonging was inspired by this episode that you and i had been talking about doing and then you know everything in june and everything coming up i just i felt it needed an entire season and i knew then that i wanted this conversation to be the finale of that um the crescendo of that conversation kind of we've been having whole season. So very exciting. So let's get started by talking about what your favorite aspects of Waldorf education are and how you feel it serves children.
1: Uh, For me, hands down, it has to be uh, rhythm, oral storytelling, circle and rhyme and verse. Uh, These are the bits of joy that made my childhood so wonderful and i was immediately drawn to them at my first exposure to waldorf education i feel like every childhood should be just filled with this simple play these simple rhythms and this connection to the stories that we carry within our hearts how does it serve children uh, so i should clarify first that when i whenever i speak of waldorf i am speaking about waldorf early childhood because that is my my expertise Uh, and I believe that, uh, Those aspects and Waldorf early childhood in general serves families by centering the rhythms of the child, the rhythms of the family, the rhythms of the home and of the community and inviting us to witness the world around us and connect to nature, the seasons, among many other things.
0: Yes. And I think I remember you mentioning in the last time that we spoke that Heaven on Earth was a really helpful book, actually, when you discovered Waldorf for the first time. Was that that book?
1: Uh, yes. Yes, that was, I was actually just going through my library the other day and I saw that and I was like kind of feeling a, a little bit uh, frazzled as happens these days when we're doing so much caring for ourselves and our families at home and uh, sheltering in place and in isolation. Uh, I I felt like I had to pull it back down to just ground myself again and paving a way, paving a way for, for us to sort of work together as a family with the little ones and with my husband. It, yeah. It never gets old. It's always there. <laughs> and it, it, and it is like to, for sake of a better, uh, lack of a better term. Uh, it's like a Bible. It's like your, you know, the Bible for caregiving, so to speak, as people use that term, I, I really feel like it is, I can open it and I can find, uh, find my way.
0: I am curious. Speaking about how Waldorf education serves children, how you feel about that bubble that's kind of created in that early childhood environment within a Waldorf program, within a Waldorf school or Waldorf setting? Do you feel that that basically, particularly pertaining to you know what we've been talking about this season about inclusion and belonging, um, and you know serving children to us? Uh, all children. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that aspect is is working? Do you feel that that is helpful? Do you feel that that can be constricting for the kinds of lessons that kids at that developmental age need to be introduced to?
1: Well, you know, I can say that I feel the bubble is a privilege. I can tell you that my children from a very young age, although they are embraced by by me mothering in this way me and me parenting in this way and also working in this way they have an understanding that there is conflict back home in the country where their father is from. They knew when George Floyd was murdered by the police uh, because there are particular conversations that need to be had with, in my case, with Black children and with children from the countries that our families are from uh, because they need to understand what's happening but also, they have to be held through it. And I think that's sort of the space I navigate, not only with my family, but in my work with immigrant origin families, in, in understanding that there's not always a bubble. The bubble is often popped for many children. And it was popped this year for so many children. But how can Waldorf expand to embrace? this experience of this child and of this family instead of uh, policing the way that they failed to maintain this bubble. That's where I feel like I'm at right now. I I'm, I'm I, I don't think it like as I say I, I feel like the bu- the bubble is a privilege for many. Some people can live in a bubble and they, and they live fine in it but it's not the truth for everyone else. And I think that Waldorf is beginning to understand how to meet that moment.
0: And from your professional perspective, then, and of course as a mother of young children as well, this is kind of a, a two part question. I guess I'm asking at the same time: yeah. what is a developmentally, or how have you approached this in a developmentally appropriate way, or perhaps guided parents to do for for children of color to, you know, to digest this information that's coming into their space and into their bubble? And the second part of that question is, um, is that I'm sure it is not the same or then how would you suggest basically to bring that into the bubble of children who who are in that, who can live in that privileged space, but for parents or educators who want to work within it, in a more constructive way to be more inclusive with those children that are perhaps more privileged.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for myself and, and with my work, uh, with those families that I, that I was with this past year in the field, what I had as a tool in my pocket was, uh, healing stories. Okay. And, I. Uh, when we know that children have either faced displacement or separation from relatives or witnessed trauma happening to their people, to, to black people, uh, police violence, state violence, the power of crafting a healing story to tell to a child that may, you know, go home and go to sleep with that on their heart or maybe living with that on their heart is, I I cannot underestimate that. It's been so powerful for me. And, uh, In my work, which we'll talk about later, 30 Sunsets and a Moon, um, two of the stories that I wrote, the spring story and the summer story, were exactly that. They were healing stories. Uh, The spring story came out of uh, trying to help my children and the children that I was serving deal with conflict back home, uh, being away from their elders, their grandparents, and reconnecting them. Uh, The summer story was specifically, I weaved in a lot of <laughs> a lot of like imagery about liberation and birds and and just trying to get my son to to imagine a future and to imagine being free uh, in this moment where he may have felt constricted, powerless, uh, sad, depressed. you know, d- children have these big feelings. and and we we have to find a way to to help them uh, navigate that space. and I feel that story. Is is really is powerful in that in that moment, and that and that's what I've used. I think that when you when you want to take that to a, I guess a co- the context of a classroom or a mother and child group educational context, it's the same. But the 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 really the issue is is that it, it's it can't be the same old stories being told all the time. Uh, it's about co-constructing and co-creating these narratives uh, that. That where the children are seen in it, and that sometimes I feel that that's where uh, Waldorf has uh, has a little bit of a problem, is that all the stories either look the same. It, things can be formulaic, uh, very Eurocentric, Christian centric, and not considering the the breadth and the and the and the vastness of the experiences of children and families in this in the in their communities around them. Uh, often I hear practitioners educators in Waldorf spaces saying they can't find stories that fit the the archetypes are, are, are kind of like the formula, which Waldorf storytelling uh, leans on. They can't find it, but I've seen it. If you look deep enough, it's there. And what a beautiful practice it is for these children to see themselves within stories that are told in the classroom or in mother and child groups. I think we've really got to push to get to that point to get out of being comfortable and and just trying to look for what's right in front of us. I mean, I've go- gone through several months of reviewing uh, resource lists for for teacher training programs and for parents. And I'm just completely surprised at at what is offered as being what is quote unquote available. I have one book, which I've shared before on my Instagram. And I used it just the other night. Seven times the sun by Shea Darian, and oh my gosh, like that. I if if I'm gonna just as much as I recommend Heaven on Earth, I'm recommending that one, and especially so uh, because of the diversity of experiences and voices, and the expansiveness of that work that she's done there. I was just looking at a chapter on, uh, I believe it what. I want to say personal renewal or healing. I can't remember. But she quoted a book in there by Eloise Greenfield, who is a Black author. And it was a story about a Black child with her grandfather. And you never, like, honestly, in all the books that I have, and and I don't claim to have every single book, but I've got quite a bit, (laughs) uh, you don't see anything like that. But but to see that in, in, in there, to see that as a resource for families and and caregivers for young children, to me really, really cemented her as someone who has done the work to say, the voice that sounds like mine and looks like me is not the only voice for, for our families.
0: Yes, that is a great book. I have that book. It's like absolutely one of my favorite references for sure. Yes. Do you feel comfortable segueing into that second part of the, the initial question that I'd asked is a very confusing two-part question, which is the importance of the need to bring in diverse stories and you know, for people to reach outside their comfort zones in these educational settings, mm-hmm. um, to bring... In for the children of, I'm describing, you know, children of privilege. But for instance, I live in a very um, and not d- very diverse community. So, okay. you know, just the importance of it's not just. There's this conversation in the Waldorf community about meeting the children in front of you, and mm-hmm. I find that myself kind of a challenging thing because if the children in front of you are all white children in a private educational setting mm-hmm. that's not a very diverse group yet i feel the importance to bring in diverse experiences stories songs accurately told you know possibly even not from the teacher if the teacher doesn't have experience in the experience with those traditions basically you know the importance of that as well and I guess basically, if you can speak to that aspect sure, of it, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. Oh
1: yeah. No, I definitely. Uh, a few years ago, just I I had given a provocation about about being in community and and how are you including others in your community. Uh, here's what happened. I was in the field with the families that I work with, and there was another group of white mothers and white children, and one black child. And they basically, even though our children tried to engage with them and build community with them, even just running a little twig boat down the stream, the mothers seemed like they had such discomfort with the thought of just joining us in in this exercise we were doing and testing how this boat would go down the stream that we built with nothing but twine and twigs. Their children were apprehensive, but you know, every now and then they would reach out. I don't. I don't claim to know exactly what made that happen, but t- to me, I look at that and I say they have been in a situation where, as you say, they've their educators or the pro- the people uh, reading stories to them or spending time with them have been meeting just them. Uh, it and even it just even though we're all in the same community and we're in close proximity to each other still there was a way for them to close off into that bubble that that conversation sparked conversations with other folks who live similar to you that prompted folks to say, well I don't live around anybody else I can't build community with black and brown folks because because I live here and there's only white people well if you if you if where you live and your place is one that all looks like you, what are the ways that you're gonna be creative in and finding a way to expose your child to the the world more broadly? One of those ways is of course through books, through storytelling, and, and through song. Through song, okay. So like I sometimes I do a lot of work with like um with like folk music. That's that's basically storytelling through song. Uh, the experiences, for example, of like Bessie Jones and what she's talking about in her songs, and the way that she speaks about uh, Little Sally Walker and Shoe Turkey, and the way that she sings it, the way that things change depending on the context in which they're sung or the the, to- the stories are told, are important for children to be exposed to. Uh, when we take the songs of other other people's communities and make them fit to the way that we sing or the way that we tell stories, we sort of rob those things of, of, of the richness (laughs) that they come with. It's just like so median and and just like full of like spice. And then you take it and you, and you make it fit to, uh, to how you are delivering songs and verse and, and stories. It's important to, to seek out these stories, seek out this folklore, these folk songs, uh, bring them into to your classrooms and expose children to a, a variety of cultures a variety of experiences and whenever you can to center the people that come from that in the way that you uh, you deliver it co-creating you can co-create like where you and I are not in the same state however <laughs> thanks to the internet and FaceTime <laughs> or what have you if you needed me to to tell you about something from my tradition, to to give you all of the knowledge that you needed to deliver it with confidence and without appropriating it or stripping it of its beauty, we, we could do that. And that's the world that we live in right now. There are virtually no excuses, in my opinion, <laughs> because we there's no such things as, as borders and travel uh, separating us these days. We've got Instagram. We've got Twitter, Facebook all of the above connecting us into everyone's world. And uh, we just have to take the steps to make those connections. And I, and I think that, you know, the more and more we have within Waldorf uh, parents and families and teachers speaking up even though often they're speaking up out of trauma but where do we go after the trauma of feeling like my child was erased my child was harmed my family was harmed to the situation where do we go from there how do we transform it and get it to a new space so that we can make it better the i think that these are the initial steps is 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 saying oh we were doing this wrong but how can we make it better i think i think that's going to get people like families like yours out of uh, out of the situation where you're just teaching white children about white people and, and white and white perspective.
0: <laughs> yes, and that kind of leads me into my next question, which I think may be coming up in the minds of some listeners. For me, um, and I, I have an idea of already what the answer to this question is gonna be, but just to kind of bring it up to expose and discuss for listeners is that I have such an intimidation to do something like that. And it's because I feel... You know, you don't owe it to me to educate me about your the authenticity of the traditions that your family celebrates or your background. And I think that I feel, you know, in listening to you discuss that kind of concept of co-creation, for the classroom is so exciting and so cool. And so like, I'm like, yes, you know, but it, like, let's say I was an early childhood education teacher and I, I personally would feel very intimidated to do something like that. Reach out to someone because of this concept of like, you don't, you don't owe me that, I guess. And I'm, I'm wondering if kind of the answer to that question is like better to just reach out and try and see how it's received or, or like basically and this isn't even something you owe me to answer either, yeah. but, you know, just for – I'm wondering because I feel that probably is coming up for some educators or parents that may be listening because I feel this, this is also an important kind of concept here that it's that the black community or the like ethnically diverse or historically othered in your community don't owe it to you to give this information and help you be the best educator too, right?
1: Right, right. Well, I think, you know, I think that we have to think about where the line is. So are you expecting me to educate you on... Uh and and do the work for you on how you should be thinking about changing your behaviors and your ways of engaging in the world? Or are you inviting me and opening up a space for me to share my perspective? And I'm going and I'm sharing it with my community, or I'm inviting you in to that space to share. Uh, I, I think, and I'm only speaking for myself. I think when black and Brown folks or maybe just I'll just speak about Black folks. When we get uncomfortable, is when uh, too much labor is put on us to educate people on things that they have the ability to do on their own, uh, to research the history of racism, of you know, uh, of Islamophobia. In my in my perspective, from my standpoint how what action, what what steps to take to to be a better citizen, a better community member, uh, to to be anti-racist? Can you tell me no, because you can read about it. Oh, but our, but then on the other side is like, okay, are you truly inviting me in to be in right relationship with me, to to take the first step to build community with me? that's a different that's not really labor that's that's what should have been going on from the beginning is that we are not living in two separate worlds right <laughs> so when when you are when when we are getting together to to break down those walls and to be in right relationship with each other and to build community with each other and to share our stories and our perspectives uh, to be welcoming and to build bridges to each other that to me there's absolutely nothing wrong with that with that for me. I don't feel like that's labor. I feel like hey, I think we're we're on the right road now, okay.
0: <laughs> I think that was a really good clarification. It's that kind of where you're asking that individual for labor for them. that's like not okay. You can do the labor yourself, but then um, inviting welcoming to create that where we talking about this and i love that term like kind of co-creation especially relating to community and education it's just a different it's a different ask basically and i'm, I'm glad we kind of got, got into it there. Yeah, so,
1: yeah. Cause there's a lot of people just wanting to be, Oh, can you tell me, am I doing this wrong? And well, no, okay. That, that you've got, you've got to do that. You've got to do that work by yourself. Okay. You know, like all that, that hard stuff, that anti-racism work, so to speak, you know, uh, that that's the work that you need to be doing yourself so that when you come to me and you call me, email, you contact me to, to take this step together, you are doing it from the right space. OK, instead of we get together on this phone call and then you offend me or the, the process breaks somewhere along the line because you haven't done your work.
0: Yes. And for listeners who are kind of curious about this term where we're talking about kind of the work to initiate being able to going into expanding yourself to having conversations um, like we're, we're we're talking about approaching now. Um, I recommend some resources in the uh trailer for this season that is episode. I believe it's episode 400. And yeah, there's just some books listed there and a few articles. So you can become more familiar with that term that we're using, kind of the work that can really help you to begin um, breaking down some of these things. Because I can just speak from my own experience. It's not even effective, basically, as I'm just going to speak from my experience as a white woman to ask for that labor or to ask, is this right? Is that wrong? Because there's kind it's so nuanced especially in that my own upbringing impacts so much of how i think and feel like that's almost like a very superficial on the outside kind of question when there's so much deeper kind of that's going on um and it's so important too i feel to explore for then our children you were speaking earlier about or we were discussing the importance of bringing in you know stories in your classroom and that's got us into having this conversation now but you know it's also the as a parent i'm speaking from my perspective as a parent the importance of modeling as well mm-hmm. um, and that's you know not it's where can you go or how can you get creative about creating a diverse experience for a child but it's also i feel how does my child relate to me you were describing that experience with the white parents and the white kids and right. you were interacting it's like that's exactly what was coming up for me: is how do I model that interaction in a healthy way for my son? And I feel, especially for the little little ones, that's probably the best thing that I can. One of the best things that I can do at this point is create scenarios where I'm modeling how I interact with a diverse world. Right. Um, and I can only imagine for teachers as well. That's you know mm-hmm. important, but you know some classrooms and are diverse and some are not, and you have to do. More and get creative if you right. don't have a diverse classroom. Uh-huh. So, let's discuss where Waldorf schools communities could be more inclusive from your perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel
1: like we've we've spoken a lot to that. Like, I I think that at the root. Uh, there is a limited frame of reference. Uh, I've spoken about it being uh, needing to abolish sort of like this Eurocentric and Christian-centric underpinning that some folks really stick to. Uh, I mentioned in another conversation about sometimes having to think about Waldorf as a system to sort of understand the way in which it operates through us Policing families and schools, and and ways of quote unquote doing Waldorf, it has to expand. If the festival season is always going to just look like this, and or we're going to try to fit uh, another group of people's festivals or another religion's festivals into uh, and make it fit into a festival being a festival of lights, for example, uh, that's not going to work because you can't shape other people into into uh something that you know has already kind of like is already like the foundation there like you can't just like make Ramadan be a festival of light because deep down it's not a festival of light there is a lot of light involved in it but it's not a festival of light you know it has these deeper meanings and these deeper values so you can't throw it in there and give it a can give it a a lantern walk and 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 then like you know Say, oh, there it is. It's in the it's in the manual now. Like you know, you can't do that. What you have to do is you have to make space for it. Make space for it. Uh, don't don't be afraid to to break these quote unquote rules, okay? And say, hey, we're going to shift to uh, expand our festival season to meet Ramadan whenever it comes into the calendar, okay? Not just be here in the fall thinking about festivals of light or in the winter, what have you and saying, Oh, even though Ramadan happened in spring, let's talk about it right now. Okay. (laughs) No, We, we, things have to change. So I feel like that's the biggest work of Waldorf right now is the discomfort in shifting and and expanding this tightness that it can have around, especially the festival season, because that's where a lot of the trauma is. And and I will speak for Muslim families. When they go into these spaces, they feel like they are being squished to fit uh, into into the Waldorf festivals, which are always, you know, publicized on, on these school websites. They, it's pretty cut and dry. This is the, these are the Waldorf festivals. This is what it looks like. And then we try to incorporate the other ones. Well, no, well, when are you doing it? Are you doing it? Is my child going to go to this school and, uh, be talking about Ramadan in, in September when they're celebrating, we're celebrating Ramadan in our home in March right? Like how that is such a discord. So, so then it's like, you're not really seeing the whole child. You're not really seeing the whole family. And, and so I think that it's really about expanding, expanding, expanding right now. That is the work of Waldorf. And, and I think it can get there because I think as we, as we talked about in our last conversation, like at the roots, uh, Waldorf can, it, it can, it can meet, all, all children. It can meet the needs of all children. Uh, where wh- What it was founded upon is such a, a beautiful thing. Uh, it, it, But sometimes when things get into the hand of the people, uh, they close off. <laughs> and they, they, they maybe begin, a, they come onto one track. Uh, we, we hear a lot of people talking about, okay, so Steiner wrote a lot of racist things wrote a lot of islamophobic things I, I have some of it on my laptop it's there but what are we gonna do now okay so are we gonna stay there and say that he's racist uh he's xenophobic he's islamophobic and uh let's write off everything completely no we can't we have to to pull it up by the roots and say we can do better and I think as I'm witnessing this this revolution going on <laughs> in, in Waldorf education. I think they're just about ready. They're behind, but I think they're ready. They're ready to take it on. The, the major organizations are showing it, you know, they're showing a commitment to this. Uh, I, ha- I got my most recent weekend journal and it was almost all about um, anti-blackness. I mean, when you put, when you put something into ink and print it, especially in that sort of publication which has been as the saying goes lily white for a long time when you when you change it like that you they have taken a risk you know they have gone into discomfort to to make the change and to shift and and so i believe that is the work and i believe that they are on the path
0: i have another question that i'm feeling a little shy to ask you i'm being honest i feel but I think that there's a lot of listeners struggling with this dynamic, um, myself included, and yeah, I'm wondering if you're willing to engage in conversation around it. I think there's a lot of, and I've actually experienced parents writing me or asking me about this, and I experienced it for myself. How can we, as I'm gonna describe myself, white privileged, you know, woman? Participate in a community that's seeking to change in a constructive way. I think that there's that guilt that's like, this is not, is this the most constructive thing that I can be doing with my, in my child's life, moving towards inclusion and creating belonging. And I will also say that schools are changing. I think immensely. I'm doing, um, as you know, I've I'm doing a, a season or starting a season very soon where I'm speaking with all Waldorf teachers within that season, and the conversations and questions that are coming up around this conversation we're having are que- are questions that I can tell you were coming up for hardly. I think any Waldorf teachers 30 years ago or 20 years ago when I was attending Waldorf school, talking about the festivals and the stories and how can we bring diversity there. I don't think those conversations were really happening the way they are now for sure. So, you know, I think that they're – as I mentioned, their parents have emailed me and they're saying, "I like, I don't want to go – I don't know that I want to go to Waldorf school because I don't know that they're like doing enough. And kind of what I hear there as well at the same time is – like are you going to go somewhere where you're not going to find racism or you're not going to find issues? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like somehow it's magically going to be inclusive where you're going? Like I don't <laughs> think that the work that you have to do as a parent is like somehow like done if you don't go to a pl- – like do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> like Yeah. Oh, no. I so get that. Yeah. I'm I'm basically wondering um, if we kind of like how can we be constructive as the like white privileged parent in these scenarios and teachers perhaps even um in the community aspect yeah yeah i think i think that it's key that
1: that you're always thinking about how you can use your privilege and speak up and and ask the right questions and um demand change wherever you wherever you are uh that's really where it begins is that you have this often you have this this platform as as a white parent that another parent may not have Uh, you are often listened to more Uh, you are not always when you bring something up you're not complaining you're not angry you're not aggressive Uh, it is sometimes are, most of the times you're seen as being constructive. So why not take advantage of that? Okay. And, and say, okay, I, I need to give this feedback to you because in order for me to be in this community here and and in this school, in the school community, I need for A, B and C to happen. I need for my child to, to blossom in an environment that sees. A, B, and C. You know, you you have to say that this is the standards we're having as a community, and it needs to happen. It has to happen. And I think the the privilege that you have is that you can say that, and you and the conversation may last long. Whereas another parent could go in, and the conversation can be shut down, or the email can just be, you know, uh, filed away as oh there she goes again because that is honestly what happens a lot of the time and that's why why families of color black families brown families they give up and they say okay i'm just going to leave but we cannot always just be leaving and leaving and leaving and leaving. So just as we are taking up space and uh, getting in good trouble, as as the term is, right, John Lewis's term, getting in good trouble, you have to also get in trouble. You have to be standing next to us, uh, acting together with us, right? Getting in trouble, not just forcing us to fight our own battles, but standing with us. And I think that's really what what I've learned because I've on a few boards in uh, around this topic around EDI, and not everyone looks like me. there are very many people on the on the boards that are that are white people. and I see them sometimes in tears uh, at the discomfort that they felt to push through having the privilege to just sit back and say nothing but doing more for the sake of the entire community. and that and I think that's where. Where you have to get I mean people that look like you have to get you have to get very uncomfortable, you might be crying, you might be sad, you might walk away uh, a little bit bruised by the interaction, but what you have done is so powerful and and has so much potential for change that I mean uh, it, it's worth it in the long run.
0: Thank you for speaking to that <laughs> So I'm wondering now if we can talk about the work you do as an educational researcher and ethnographer and where your work has intersected with Walter philosophy. Okay. Well, so as far as the grassroots morning garden
1: project, uh, we, uh, we, I say we, as if there's like <laughs> all these people, it's, it's my little dream. Uh, it's just me and, and, uh, uh, all my hopes and wishes for this world working together. Uh, we haven't been doing much in the field now. I haven't been doing much in the field now due to uh, social distancing and uh, having to care for my own children, having to uh, navigate working from home and getting everything done. Uh, what I began to do this year was to explore uh, using zines and, uh, booklets, so to speak, and and archives as a way to disseminate my research and my thinking around these topics. Uh, I was scheduled to present at the Waldorf 100 conference, and that was canceled. Prior to that, I had already been in conversation with my good friend, Jessica Lewis-Stevens, a uh, sugar house workshop on, um, Instagram. Uh, we were talking about doing a zine together and I was just like, Oh, let me just take this zine with me t- to Chicago. Uh, and, uh, and maybe include a little bit of the recipes and the things that we did, uh, for any educator, uh,
0: that attended my. Talk. Sorry. Was that the Waldorf 100 or was that the OSNA conference? In yeah,
1: Chicago. the one well, well, it was like it was the one where it's the Alliance We Can and all, We
0: Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, that yeah, one, yeah, yeah so that okay. one.
1: <laughs> yes, so that got canceled, and then I decided, you know what, I'm going to basically put everything, <laughs> almost everything that I was planning to present, all of the methods and the ways of doing things with these families, into into this zine. Okay. So, uh, the story that I co-created with the families, um, the, the butterfly moon for Ramadan, uh, that that's in the zine, uh, the recipes that the mothers shared that were shared, uh, in person, uh, we had tea time. We together, we had our snack, we served tea, and uh sweets or you know cakes fruits everything the recipes the things that they brought when we celebrated the the onset of Ramadan like those are in the book uh capturing those moments we share together i did not uh i i did not take up any space on that recipe i just put it right there uh, for for them to to really to shine because each of them Came with a story of their tradition in their country, like uh, my dear friend Mariam, and she spoke about drying herbs in Morocco. Uh, my friend uh, saraya she's talking about uh, dabo, which is like an Ethiopian bread she cooks with her daughter, and she brought it to us one day. Um, just really exemplifying uh, uh, what I believe is community, being in right community with families, uh, is in that first zine. Now, I, at first, it wasn't going to be a volume one, but it became a volume one because as I was working through that first volume, I began to think about some of the issues that I faced. Okay, uh, in dealing with families, in the, in, I had two groups. Um, so as I thought of those issues, I said, "You know what? I am going to." And I'm thinking. Let me say, I'm thinking of these issues that I face. Which one of them was anti-blackness within the Muslim community here? Okay, I'm I'm thinking about that. Documenting these stories, documenting these work, and here we have Breonna Taylor, George Ta- George Floyd happening, uh, the pandemic happening, people people dying, people starving. All of this, all of these converging movements and experiences of of people, and especially those that are that are impacted more, which happen to be you know black and brown folks. I said, you know what? I'm going to take this opportunity to say we're going to do a volume two. And I'm gonna begin talking about, about not just a volume two, but several volumes. It's gonna be a three-volume project. I'm gonna begin documenting and talking about the solutions to when we face these issues. What are the answers, right? So when we when we find that even in our community we are facing challenges, how do we how do we rise up out of that challenge? And how do we maintain community? It, in the face of difference, in the face of conflicting movements. So uh, you know I may be dealing with something from from my space in the world and then a family that I am working with is dealing with their own issues. How can we come together in solidarity, right? <laughs> How can we build coalition which it is important is an important thing for educators to learn to be in coalition. And in solidarity with families. Okay. That that's really a really a good thing to know. And I'm trying my best to sort of exemplify that <laughs> with within the zine. So my work has gone off the ground and and into this new creative way of, of, of thinking about uh thinking about uh spreading the word, spreading the knowledge, spreading the research and making it digestible to everyone from a colleague of mine to a family that just wants to bring the stories and the, the crafts and the, and the reflections that I have that I had in those moments into their home.
0: And do you want to talk about where people
1: can find that? Oh, sure. Um, let's see. So right now it is out of print. Um, until er- about early spring, we will print again, volume one. Uh, and that can be found on uh, sh- I think it's sugarhouseworkshop.com forward slash thirty sunsets and a moon thirty sunsets and a moon,
0: and that's uh, the first scene.
1: That's a yeah, that's the yeah. first one. Okay, and so we will we, we will the the next one will be released. I think inshallah, like it's going to be maybe like late fall. Uh, or so of next year, you know, you know, we're both moms, you know, so we, we try our best to get it out on a timeline, but you know, things happen. So, uh, but, but we have some really great oral history interviews going into this second volume. I we are very much like activated by the, the work I've been doing around, um, material aid and and helping folks get food on the table with uh, by my food program that just kind of came out of nowhere. And we're thinking about ways that we can uh, better serve our communities that are in need uh, through this work. So a lot coming in 2021. That's the year it is next year, right? 2021.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is. And I have wow. to tell, you know, the audience as well, basically when the, these releases happen, you talk about it on social media. Um, the, uh, was there another location you're going to be having a release as well, or is it the only place? Oh, I'm just yeah, remembering. No, that- I'm sorry. Yeah. There's like, a, so Acorn
1: Toy Shop, they are going to be, um, they carried, they they purchased some and they're going to be purchasing again. Uh, they're going to be carrying it again. And that's a wonderful Um uh, toy shop that is online, but that was in a uh, Brooklyn, I believe. <laughs> and, uh, they sold out very fast, but I, I would say, keep your eyes peeled on their space. Uh, you can actually, I think, request notification for when the, the zine comes back in stock. Uh, and Jessica and I are going to be thinking about, uh, possibly a way to get like a newsletter out so people can sign up, uh, To, to find out about the next release. So we want to make sure as many people get it into their hands. And you know, we don't want anyone to be without. So even once we go out of print, I guess we'll be thinking about other ways that we can offer it uh, to families.
0: Yes, I feel I at least two releases now. I've been like I missed it <laughs> so fast. Like I've been like, trying. Then I've sent you like annoying messages later. Yeah. Like Ashley, I want it so bad. I want it so bad. I know. I know. Um, so you have to just stay on it, people. It will come. It will come. Yeah, it's to be amazing. good things. You have to wait. You know. Um. So also, you've been doing um some work for you know, providing for families that are struggling with food insecurity. Do you want to talk about that as well? Oh,
1: sure. I mean, uh, you know, that one just sort of came out of the blue. And I, you know, in many ways, I feel like this, what happened in that moment in December, uh, when I just simply asked, is there anyone that needs help? Uh, that's the way that you just really, you just really got to step up and say, Hey, you know, I may not even know how to handle this, but I just want to know, is there anyone here in community with me that needs help? And I got literally on that day, I got one person say, I need help. I do. I'm struggling. And I had one person say, uh I'm willing to support this. Just let me know who needs help. And then a week later, 75 families <laughs> uh received this direct cash assistance and the and the money is somewhat still rolling in. I, I'm getting ready to redistribute funds for those who uh said they need a rent relief. So it's amazing what can happen from just that one little seed that you plant saying, uh I want, I I want to help. And, and and I'm hoping somebody gives the me gives me the opportunity to do so in the best way that I can. So we have some very very uh, grateful families that are so grateful that that I started this and I and, and I'm grateful that I had the energy to get through it. I did not get through it alone. I had my my dear friend um, Juliana Pinto MiKen from Waldorf POC She was my bookkeeper. <laughs> she still is. She keeps everything organized for me. Uh, she stepped in, and, you know, just like this type. This is how this type of mutual aid works. Is you know, people, you can't do it alone. People step in with whatever expertise they have. There's nobody that is like the master of everything. We we all need each other's help, and we're all sort of got to work together to to make it work smoothly. I, I would get the the contributions. I'd send them to her. She organized them in a spreadsheet. And then I would look there and I know how much we got, how much we need to give, who needs help. And we also had a needs assessment or I, I wrote a needs assessment, which means like I'm asking in the form, you know, what else do you need help with? Is, is it um, speech therapy, child care? Uh, are you unhoused, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, it. I had to take a break after that because there was so much need. There is so much need out here in the world. And uh it, it 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 was almost overwhelming, you know. Uh uh but I I feel good that I was able to help just a little bit and uh, who knows where that project will go from from here. I just called it the food program because uh it, if anyone knows me, they know that my background when I wasn't working at home, which I'm getting ready to go back into now is in child care subsidy resource and referral, and that in research and policy around that. And food programs are a part of <laughs> daycare, family daycare homes and and uh, center-based operations. You know, you get on some can opt into a USDA food program uh, that that makes sure that that uh, the children have meals all day long. <laughs> Their snack, breakfast, lunch. Not dinner, but another snack. (laughs) So I just said, hey, it's called the food program. That's what I'm doing. That's what I know. That's what I evaluated for
0: years. And is the best way for people to find you to contribute to that if they wanted to, through your social media, maybe through your Instagram, the link in your bio is that's the best place to
1: Yeah, there's a Yeah, there's a um well I I just made uh the webs my website live live, Grassroots Morning Garden. So I should have told you that. <laughs> I forgot because I just put it up. So grassroots org is live. The only page that's available is the food program page right now and it has all of the information for that. Uh so you can find everything there from when we're going to open up uh the next, uh, form for families to request assistance, uh, to where you can donate at any time, which is Venmo and PayPal. And for both, uh, I think the, the Venmo is grassroots morning garden, the PayPal that I just opened, and I believe is just grassroots, grassroots morning, but that all can be found, uh, at the link in the profile.
0: Great. And do you want to also share where people can find you on social media? Oh, sure. You can find me
1: uh, at May Ashley J. Uh, That is my handle on Instagram. You can also find me on Twitter, but I'm very quiet on Twitter and very loud on Instagram. (laughs) That's the best place to find me. And I'm a very visual person. So if you uh, would like are into having deep conversations and uh, lovely pictures, then that's the place to be.
0: Yes, I love that speech. Mm-hmm. I just love it so much. I have to tell you. Oh, thank so you. I have just one more question for you before sure. we wrap up and I feel like it's like so broad and you know such a big question in a way that I just can't I feel like he almost can't even ask, and I also want to reference back to this episode that we already recorded together last year um, about your kind of personal experience in bringing Waldorf into your home. Mm-hmm. And basically, what I wanted to get into or ask is that this whole conversation we've been having has so much been driven from my personal perspective as a white woman, and I'm just wondering. You know, if there's anything you want to bring up or offer for Black and Brown people, Indigenous people, p- people who've been historically othered uh, within Waldorf communities or intersecting with Waldorf communities in, in some way, or or just anything that you want to offer to those folks, there's no way that I can authentically ask the questions of those members in, in community. So is there anything that you want to say or offer there? I know there was so much you actually the episode that we recorded together last year mm-hmm. has had more like basically what happens is an episode comes out and there's like a bunch of listens, then like listens trickle in kind of over time. The episode that you and I recorded together, the listens like keep doubling more than any other I like they that. keep going up over time more than any other episode has had like listens trickle in and i think that so much of what people enjoyed was they they felt they heard like a little bit of themselves in in your voice or your experience. So again wow. i'll reference back to that episode but i've heard that quite a bit. So i just wanted to kind of bring that up that i didn't offer that or can't bring that in an authentic way to this conversation. So i'm wondering as i mentioned if there's just anything that you you know kind of want to offer or bring to those those mm. folks.
1: You know, one thing that I, I'm always just, just always amazed by is that there was a really long time where I felt like I was the only one uh, having this conversation uh, and asking these questions in, in on Instagram and in social media. I felt very alone and I was like, well, why are we so quiet? Because I know that we're out there. And then what about, I guess, like it's just been about a year now, Waldorf POC came came on the scene and I'm so grateful for them because they have provided the home, they have made a home for Black, Brown, Indigenous voices uh, really uh, in and around uh, Waldorf, okay? Uh, they did... They did a takeover. I, I did a takeover there, and they and they had. A, I think they had one more. I can't remember. But if you just if you just look through the comments on those to those takeovers at, at Water of POC, you will see the beauty and the depth of of the experiences of people like me, Black people, Brown people, Indigenous folks. Uh, that are in Waldorf. Uh, we're out there. And uh, now we don't really have to be looked for. It's like a what's happening right now is, is really, really important because, because before, let's say, the conversation was framed around, like you're saying, uh, the white experience, a white woman asking the questions based on her frame of reference, right? But now we are having these conversations from all these different perspectives, but from being the being, I don't want to say from the margin because I don't like to think about us being from the margin because we're not on the outside. We're, we're right in there, but, but our, our voices are different. Our experiences are different and they're all there. And there are places like the Waldorf spaces like Waldorf POC that are really exhibiting, uh, that we have, we have a place there. We have a place in Waldorf, okay. As professionals, as thinkers like myself about Waldorf practices and as families, whether it's in their home, like myself, because my children do not go to a Waldorf school, but because of the Waldorf home that I had for them before they went to school and, uh, the one that I actually keep, um, it's a relevant conversation still for me as a mother. Okay. I think it's important for even for you as a white woman and for other women in places of privilege to go into those species, spaces, not take up space, but to, to see that, to, to witness it, to bear witness to those experiences, right? To, to understand that we, we're here. We've always been here. We didn't show up. We didn't just show up because George Floyd uh, had a knee on his neck or Breonna Taylor was shot, you know, in the home. Uh, we, we've always been here. And we will continue to be here. Okay?
0: Yes. And... Thank you. I can't thank you enough for sharing your perspective, professional perspective. You know, you brought a little personal experience into it too. The sharing and the wisdom and the space that you create. We talked quite a bit about you know that space on Instagram. You mentioned um, your Instagram handle, and I'll put that on the show notes page for this episode. As you mentioned, uh, Waldorf POC. That actually is their handle. So Waldorf POC on Instagram, and I'll put that on the show notes page for this episode as well. And And yeah, thank you. Just thank you so much for the wisdom that you shared and sharing this space with me today. Thank
1: you. Oh, thank you. I hope I didn't
0: talk your ear off. (laughs) I love it. Any day, any day. It's so funny because I feel like it's like this is the most feeling of like talking to celebrity of any episode I've ever done. (laughs) <laughs> because yeah. i just look forward to it so much and just the being in the wisdom in the space that you offer is it feels so special and it feels so it's it's really for me like i there's no one there's no other expression than like shook me to my core like it's really it's really a, it's brought questions in for me so deep elf i know i am not the only white woman who has who has felt that in your space and listening and just being, being there, just being there to, to hear what you're sharing and, and just what you shared in this episode. Thank you again so much. All right. Wonderful. I'm so,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to, to have had this moment with you and if there's, there's anything that, uh, anyone can get from this conversation but especially uh to to white folks trying to uh be in right relationship with black brown indigenous folks is that we we can't do this alone but we're we're in this together okay so and 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 that's how the way we have to proceed is we all have to do our work we all have to get we all have to get in good trouble and get out there speak up get loud and make change
0: yes Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening in. This episode is the last episode of season four and the last episode of 2020. However, we're jumping right into season five right away. Season five has already started recording and you'll be able to hear the trailer for season five, where I'll be announcing the theme for the season, either coming out this next Tuesday or the following Tuesday. It has a lot of topics that listeners have requested I cover, and I'm really looking forward to sharing it all with you very soon. Know that the show notes page for this episode, including the resources that we spoke of here, can be found at waldorfy.com forward slash Ashley May. Quickly, I want to give an extra special thanks to all of the Waldorfy Patreon supporters. As I've mentioned in a couple of the past episodes, the pandemic has hit our family pretty hard. We all had COVID-19 back in March, and although, thankfully, we've all fully recovered, my husband's industry entertainment has been completely wiped out, at least for the time being. It's been tough to manage taking on extra work and being away from my little one, which I had not expected to be doing, but the support of the Patreon members has made it possible for me to continue doing this work and to continue supporting guests like Ashley May to come on the show. I really love running this show. I love connecting with you through this platform and over on social media, and thanks to our Patreon support, I'm still able to do this, so thank you all so much if you want to learn more about supporting the show on patreon please visit waldorfie.com forward slash patreon i know a while back i had also talked about some bonus content for patreon members and with all the extra stuff that i've been up to to bring in some extra money i've had to put that on the back burner for now but i just wanted to let you know that i have not forgotten about that now also i want to thank all of you listening too i know that some of you like me don't have that extra little bit to support the show no problem. I love reading your reviews on Apple Podcasts. I love when you share episodes on social media. I see you too, and I want to thank you. Even just listening is supporting. So thank you so much. So much gratitude from me to you. Thank you all again for listening to this episode and this whole fourth season. I'm so looking forward to touching in with you very soon in the season five trailer. Be well.